Ben. Thank you, worship team. Thank you for the songs this morning. And good morning, Valley Bible Church. Do you feel like you're in a fog? Because you are. You're in a fog. If you don't, if you think you're the only one in a fog, then there's something else going on. But anyway, we're all in a fog this morning. But the Lord is our light and our salvation, and He shines through these gloomy days. Spring is coming. Always will. A little more snow first, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, it's good to have you here this morning, and we're continuing in our study of uh, 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 1. This morning we're going to look at verses uh, 10 through 17. Before we get into the scripture reading, I would invite you to pray with me if you would, please. Great are you, Lord. And you are most worthy of praise. You are to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idols. But you, the Lord, have made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before you. Strength and beauty are in your sanctuary. We will ascribe to you, O Lord, glory and strength. We ascribe to you, O Lord, the glory that is due your name, and we worship you in the beauty of your holiness. And we come to you boldly this morning. We confess our iniquities. We are troubled by our sin. We ask you, Lord, that you not forsake us, that you be not far from us, that you make haste to help us, to renew us, because you are our Lord and the Lord of our salvation. So we thank you that we can indeed come boldly to you this morning through Christ our Savior, in whom we are called to sanctification and holiness. Open our minds and our eyes and our wills to understand, to grow in the fear and wisdom of the Lord. So we ask your ministry of teaching this morning in our lives, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. His word is a lamp unto our feet, and so I ask you, because of honoring the word of God, to stand as we read. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and uh, our passage this morning, chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. And would you please give attention to the reading of God's word? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, the word of God. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank my God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you would say you were baptized in my name. 
Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. And God's people said, Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. So we are looking at this passage, and this is about the quarrelsome cliques in Corinth. Quarrelsome cliques in Corinth, and indeed they were. Um, Click is not a word that we use very often. I remember from junior high and high school, we were always warned about cliques, um, but it's apt here. A clique is a, a narrow and exclusive group. A group of people, they have common interests, but they oftentimes see themselves as superior to others, and they don't easily let other people in. Paul does not use the word click here, but again, the, the word is an apt description of the problem that he's addressing in our passage this morning. They have been divided into groups that are exclusionary, they are competing, and they're quarreling. They're fighting in the church. These things ought not to be. Cliques divide, and the church is to be united. So obviously, we got a problem. They are to be united and not to be divided, and so that's where we jump in right away in our outline in verse 10, that we, as well as they, are to strive for unity in Christ alone. We have unity in Christ alone. We've seen that the last couple of weeks. And Paul has talked about their calling in Christ. Remember we talked about that? When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you are in him and you are complete in him. He is sufficient. And that is the basis of the unity that the Corinthians are to have. It is the basis of the unity that we already have. And so he says this in verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren. Let's just stop there before we get to the rest of this. He exhorts them. It's a, it's a, a strong word. Elsewhere, it's, it's translated as I appeal to you or I urge you. In fact, he uses the same formula in Romans 12, 1, which is very familiar to us, where he says, therefore, I urge you, exhort you, brethren, uses brethren, by the mercies of God. Same formula here. I exhort you, brethren, by the name of God. So he is strongly appealing to them, and he's appealing to them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so far, Paul has been very encouraging to the Corinthians. He's spoken of their position and their standing and their calling in Christ. And those were meant to be encouraging words, which were setting the stage to call them up to live who they are in Jesus Christ, their standing, their position in him. But we need to remember where we left off last week, verse 9, and we'll put it up here because it goes with verse 10. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see how they go together. Having said this, that they, that they are called into fellowship with his son, he now broaches the subject of hand at hand. They who are in fellowship with God's son 
are in fellowship with one another, but that fellowship is threatened by division. They have fellowship. They have unity. The idea for them, the idea for us, is that we are to live out what we have in Christ. And one of those things that we have is that we are in fellowship with one another because we are in fellowship with Christ, and it cannot be otherwise because we are all in Christ. Notice also that he calls them brethren. He calls them brothers. Paul uses the word brothers, brethren, scores of times in 1 Corinthians. In fact, it's very interesting because here is a church that's having all sorts of problems and he's addressing them, and he calls them brothers more than any other letter that he writes. That's pretty important. Um, He is going to call them brothers throughout the book, and he calls them brothers at this very important uh, juncture as he's introducing the problems. He will refer to the church as the body of Christ, which we think is pretty important. We think uh, chapters 12, 13, and 14, oh, great teaching about the body of Christ. But he only refers to the church in Corinth as the body of Christ a handful of times, honestly. Many, many, many more times he calls them brothers. Brothers, which is what? Family. Family. He appeals to them as brothers and sisters in Christ, not the corporate institution of the church at Corinth. No. That's family. How did they become brothers and sisters? They were called into fellowship with his son. It is the sonship of Jesus and their union with him by faith that makes them sons of God. And we are too sons of God and therefore brothers and sisters in Christ. Every one of us who believe in Jesus, brothers and sisters in Christ. So he urges them, he appeals to them as brothers. And then he appeals to them in this, in a very strong but tender way by using the name of Jesus Christ. He says, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that full name of Christ. He is the Lord. We have to to look at this, and they need to understand that Jesus is Lord. He is Lord of all. We do not make him the Lord. He is already the Lord. He is Lord of the Old Testament. He is the Lord of the New Testament. He is the Lord of creation. He is the Lord of Israel. He is the Lord of history. He is the Lord of salvation. He is the Lord of the church. He is the Lord of the future. He is the Lord of our lives. He is the Lord of all. And they're call, he's calling them to unity in the name of the Lord. Now think about this for a minute. We know this. And think about the background of the, the Corinthians. We talked about this in our first, uh, our first week. Paul came to Corinth and he went to the synagogue. He always did that. And he preached to the Jews and, and a few Jews came to Christ, including the leader of the synagogue. That's important. And then they kicked him out, remember? And he said, fine, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And he went to the Gentiles and he preached the gospel to the Gentiles. And this church though it had Jews in it, was primarily comprised of Gentiles. Now, what was the background of these Gentiles? And what did he have to teach them over the period of the year and a half that he was with them? As a predominantly Gentile congregation, 
it was important for Paul to teach them the basics of who God is and the basics of the faith. It's not like Valley Bible Church. People come here and your background is Methodist or Lutheran or Catholic or whatever it may be. With a Judeo-Christian background, these people were raw pagans. These people participated in sacrifices to false gods, which, which um, Paul will call later demons. These people probably participated in the cultic prostitution at the temple of Aphrodite. I mean, we're talking about they had no idea who the God of Abraham was. They had a panoply of gods that they worshipped. They were, uh, they were um, total pagans. So where did he start? What did he have to teach them? There is a God. It's like uh, um, this is a football. You have to... <laughs> There is a God. This is what God is like. He had to teach them about creation, about the fall, about the promise of the Messiah. Uh, when, he chose, when, when God chose Abraham and said, through you will come a nation, through whom will come the Messiah, through whom will come the, the blessings of all the nations. He had to teach them about the fulfillment of messianic prophecies throughout the Old Testament and particularly how they were fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth about his virgin birth, about his sinless life, about his miracles, about his teaching, about his crucifixion, about his sacrificial death, about his resurrection and ascension into heaven and what it all meant. They had no point of reference for any of these things. These are familiar to us living in a Judeo-Christian culture, but these people, all I'm saying is this, when Paul says, I exhort you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that phrase is loaded with meaning for them. As they have learned this stuff. And this is what they are called to from their former manner of life. And then he gives the content of the exhortation, the second part of verse 10, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. He wants them to agree. The word, the word agree here is an interesting word because, or, or phrase. It is literally speak the same things. And it was a, a classical Greek expression, which meant to live in harmony. In fact, there was a, um, a, a grave marker of a first century husband and wife that was discovered that had that phrase on it speak the same things. In other words, people recognize that couple as living a life of harmonious fellowship with one another, so much so that was the epitaph on their gravestone as a husband and wife that they lived in such great harmony. He's calling the Corinthians to that, that there be no divisions among you. Division is the word schism. That's, a, that's an ugly word in English, isn't it? Schism. Literally, fractures. Paul says that there be no schisms. He's trying to avoid it. There are problems that he's addressing in the church that if they don't get a hold of things, they're going to fracture along these fault lines and the church is going to split. And it goes on to say that you be made complete. And some of your versions might say you might be uh, in unity or perfect unity. 
The word is a word that means to restore something to its better position. Galatians 6.1, for instance, it says, Brethren, even if any of you are caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. That's the word that is used here. There's something amiss. There's something broken in your brother's life. Help them fix it. Help it be restored to its, its ideal state. It's a word that means to be made complete, to restore. So the church has deviated from this standard of unity, and it needs to be restored to full health. The word was also used in Matthew and Mark of, of mending nets. So you have these fishermen's nets, and they have holes in them, and they need to re- be restored, and the, the holes need to be plugged up so that it is useful once again. And that's what he's saying about the church in Corinth. You have deviated from that standard of wholeness and unity, and you need to be restored. You need to be completely united, and at this point, they are not. He will show us in a moment. So, and then he says, in the same mind, in the same judgment, Notice the words speaking the same thing, same mind, same judgment. Basically, their thinking is off. They need to get on the same page. They need to come to a common agreement and mindset on the issues that divide them. He's not calling them to to just go along to get along. He's calling them to come to an understanding together of what truth is, which brings us to this lesson for us. It is God's truth that unites us in Christ. It's not resolving all the differences that we might have because we might have differences that cannot be resolved. But he's calling them to a unity that they already have in Christ. It is based upon truth. And they're being divided This is true for us as well. We need to be on the same page on the things that are essential, on the things that unite us, on the truth that makes us one, and there are many truths like that. Read verses 1 through 9. We are united, and we are to stay united by that truth in Christ. So we are to strive for this unity... On the the negative side, we're to avoid disunity. We see in verses 11 through 12, avoid disunity in the conflict of cliques. Conflicts cause cliques, and maybe cliques cause conflicts. I think it's a vicious cycle, isn't it? But he's telling them to avoid this, and they're in this conflict because of these cliques that they're, they're involved in, these little groups. Verse 11, for I have been... Pardon me. I have been informed concerning you, brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. There is a woman named Chloe, whom they both know. The church in Corinth knows who she is. Paul knows who she is. We don't know who she is. I love the name Chloe. I still want a granddaughter named Chloe, if any of my kids are listening out there. But anyway, beautiful, beautiful name for a little girl. Anyway. Chloe, we don't know who she was, but apparently she had been in Corinth. Either she was a member of the church in Corinth or a 
a member of the church in Ephesus. She had been in Corinth and she saw and heard about the problems of the quarreling, the infighting that was taking place in the church. In her travels, for whatever reason, whether it was business or whatever, she comes to Ephesus where Paul is, who wrote the letter from Ephesus. And she says, Paul, you need to know what's going on in Ephesus, in Corinth. They're at each other's throats. It is not good. It is ugly. So she and her people, her household, they tell Paul what's, what's going on. Notice that Paul knew who she was. This was not some anonymous thing. People are saying that this is what's happening in Corinth. We, well, that happens all the time in church, doesn't it? But it's right out in the open. He calls her by name. Today we have you know, whistleblowers who hide behind anonymity to avoid reprisals. And people do that in church too. They write secret notes to the leaders. You know what we do with those? They go in the trash can. If you have a problem, put your name to it, okay? Be, be faithful to God. Do the right thing. And Paul was not afraid to say, you know who Chloe is, I know who she is, and she, she has brought this, this report to us. The, sh- the church should never function with, you know, I heard many people are saying, well, who, what people? And then, you know what, that becomes a, a process problem. Someone says, well, well, who are they? How come they didn't come to me? And then the thing that is the real issue never gets resolved because people are fighting about, well, they should have come to me first, and now that they didn't come to me, I'm not going to talk to them. Believe me, I've seen it happen many times amongst believers. If you have a problem, go to that person. But here's the problem. The concern brought to Paul is that there are quarrels among the Christians in Corinth. The word quarrel is very simple to understand. We don't use it very often. We usually say people are fighting. But it means strife. It means discord. It means contention. It means arguing. It means all the things that are opposite of unity, right? That's what it means. This is very unseemly of Christians. To be quarreling amongst one another I don't know how many of you have experienced this, but I bet many people in this room have. But if you've ever been in a situation with a group of Christians in a room where they are fighting, where there is out and out anger and disagreement, it is a very ugly thing. And it is so other from what we are to be as Christians. It is disheartening. This is the behavior that splits churches. This is the behavior that is dishonoring to God and brings reproach upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beloved, these things ought not to be true of us. And they're not a Valley Bible church. I thank you for that. But this church, Corinth, is going to be split along these fractured fault lines if they don't do something about it. For us, for them, here's a lesson. Open, godly communication is God's way of resolving conflict. Open, godly communication. If you have a problem, talk to that person. It's never talk to someone else. That is always the wrong thing. Well, I heard somebody say that. No, don't. Don't don't do that. It is sin. 
We are to speak the truth in love. Yes, we're going to have disagreements. Yes, there are going to be times when it's important for us to restore a brother who is in sin, or there's a misunderstanding, or there is an argument that is brewing. God's way is open communication, and that's how we resolve issues, speaking the truth in love. Quarreling, infighting should never mark Valley Bible Church, and I pray that it never does. It is this way, Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. and Do not give the devil an opportunity. And then he says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. That is how we handle conflict. We put aside the anger and the words of anger and we put on words that are edifying and we, we love people and we speak the truth and we come together. So those were the quarrels. Now Paul gets to the specifics of what is happening in verses 12 and following. And he says, now this is what I mean. This is what's going on, he says that each one of you is saying, and and there are these four different groups, and each of them seem to have a slogan for their group. First says, I am of Paul. The second, I am of Paulus. And the third, I of Cephas. And the fourth, I of Christ. Think about Paul and Apollos and Peter they were the three superstars of the apostolic church, right? I mean, who else was up there with Paul and Peter and and Apollos? Perhaps this is akin to what happens in 21st century Christianity today where people have their favorite online preachers. And it's okay to have that. It's okay to listen. But we need to be careful of personality cults. That's what this was in Corinth. These were personality personality cults. We need to be careful of of raising up John MacArthur or John Piper or Alistair Begg or David Jeremiah, that they're the final word. That's my real pastor. That's the one I listen to. That's the one I resonate with. Fine. But today, celebrity pastors, it's a thing, I think, that is not the best thing in the church in America. Because in many cases, if you have a hot band and skinny jeans, you can make a megachurch, right? It's all you need. But here's what they were saying. I am of Paul. That makes sense. Paul planted the church, right? Paul planted the church and people knew him and he is the apostle Paul. I mean, good grief. Of course you follow Paul. But the problem is you exclude others from following Paul. And then there's a group that says, well, I of Apollos. Remember, Apollos came to Corinth um, when Paul was leaving in Acts chapter 18, the first 
first part, first part of verse chapter 19. And Apollos preached in Corinth, and he was known for his oratory skills. He was the silver-tongued preacher, and he preached in Corinth. And people probably said, wow, this guy is good. He's a lot better than Paul. I'm going to follow him. Paul, Ben Orchard, they stutter all over the place. But Apollos, I'll follow this guy. He is my guy. It's understandable. They were naturally attracted to his charisma. And then there's Cephas, who was Peter. Um, We don't know. uh, There's no record of him going to Corinth, but he probably did. And he was mainly the apostle to the Jews. And so the Jewish Christians might naturally glom on to Peter because Paul was a little loosey-goosey with some of his stuff, and Peter wanted to keep the, the line on some legalistic things. And so Peter. And then the last one, I of Christ. If they're of Christ, shouldn't they be saying, we are of Christ? Because when they say, I am of Christ, what is the implication? You're not. I'm of Christ, but you're not. I think we see that today with many Christians that are anti-establishment. I put Christians in quotation marks, perhaps. Anti-establishment, anti-authoritarian. These are the people who eschew all kinds of human leaders. These are the people that say, I'm not into religion, I'm spiritual. These are the anti-church folks who say, you know, I don't really go in for organized religion, institutionalized, institutionalized Christianity. I don't belong to any church. I don't go to church because I'm not going to submit myself to human leaders. I follow Jesus. Sounds very spiritual, doesn't it? But it's not. It is rebellious because the church is Christ's bride The church is God's plan. Plan A is the church. There is no other plan. This is his plan to reach the world. And those who separate themselves from the church, we wonder whether they believe in the Christ that they they call themselves to. This is actually an anti-personality cult. This is the ultimate elitism because in the end, these these people are focusing upon themselves because they're saying, I have a special access to Christ that you do not have. And when they talk about God said this to me and God spoke to me and blah, 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 it can be intimidating to many people, but it is not. So, for us, when we exclude others from fellowship through spiritual elitism, we actually deny our unity in Christ. When we elevate people and we, we, we... have an air of spiritual elitism that we're better than others and we know more than others and we, we, we look down our noses at other groups. We deny our unity in Christ. There are to be no spiritual elites in the church and, and there are to be no spiritual elites in Valley Bible Church. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ on equal standing. Leaders and attenders and worshipers alike, we're all on equal standing. It is contrary, spiritual elitism is, contrary to the teaching of Christ and it is contrary to the principles of the gospel. We are one. So, 
in verses 13 through 17, Paul gives some more teaching in which we see we are to refrain from the foolishness that diminishes the gospel. We're to refrain from this foolishness that diminishes the gospel. And we'll see that that's what he's talking about. And I use the word foolishness on purpose here because he's he's going to launch into the rest of the chapter where he's going to talk about human wisdom and foolishness of man and foolishness of God. And we'll get there. So I use that word on purpose. And Paul makes three points. The first is this. The person of Christ is indivisible. The person of Christ is indivisible. He cannot be cut up. He cannot be apportioned out. He says to them, has Christ been divided? The expected answer is, of course not. Christ is not divided and does not divide believers. On the contrary, what does Christ do with believers? He gathers them. He unites them. He's not divided up and apportioned out in in one way to this group and apportioned out to another way in this group and another way in this group. He is indivisible. He is one. He is a unity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We can include the Trinity in this. They are not divided either. Indivisible. And then he says, Paul was not crucified for you, was he? I think this is a bit of sarcasm. The expected answer is what? Don't be ridiculous. It's not just no. It's like, are you kidding me? But of course not. How could you think such a thing? But he's showing them how preposterous these silly little groups, if you carry their their play acting to its logical conclusion, has Christ Has Paul been crucified for you? Of course not. Only Christ was crucified. The crucifixion, redemption, forgiveness of sin, it is reserved for the Lord Jesus Christ only. Perish the thought of someone else dying for you. Paul is demonstrating this absolute foolishness, the preposterous and ridiculous implications of their immature attitudes and actions. And for the Corinthians at this point, it should have been a face plant. You're right. What was I thinking? What silliness have I been up to? The second thing that he says in verses 13b through 16 is, our union with Christ is incomparable. Our union with Christ that we've been talking about, and Paul's been talking about in verses 1 through 9, it is incomparable. Your relationship with Christ cannot be compared to any other people any other person, any other leader on this earth, it is incomparable. He says in verse 13b, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The name of Paul versus being baptized in the name of Christ while he's exhorting them as brothers in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not continuing to show how foolish and ludicrous this is that they have formed allegiances and loyalties to various personalities to mere men more than their allegiance to Christ. Uh -uh. That happens in cults, right? 
that happens in cults, and that that happens very closely in in uh, cult-like thinking when people elevate Christian leaders to a place that they should not be. Our first devotion is Christ. For only he was crucified, and it is only into him that we are baptized. There is no other. So he goes on to say in verses 14 through 16, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you are baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. All, what he's saying is this. I baptized a few people in Corinth, and I'm grateful to God in his providence that it was just a few. Because if he had baptized uh, half of the church, he'd have a much bigger problem, wouldn't he? A much bigger following that we're saying, go Paul, go Paul, go Paul, team Paul. But the key is verse 15 where he says, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Um, He assumes, by the way, that they're all baptized, doesn't he? He assumes that they're all baptized, but he's making the point that he didn't baptize them all. And those that he did baptize, he certainly didn't baptize in the name of Paul. Which is saying baptism is important, but it, it is not salvation. The point is made, even if he did baptize a few in Corinth, he didn't baptize anybody in the name of Paul. The very thought of it is like, what are you thinking? It's absurd. For us, when we improperly elevate human leaders, we diminish Christ. When we elevate people to a a status that they should not have, we diminish Christ. It's like John, the apostle. He must increase and I must decrease. And when we elevate human leaders, whether they're celebrity pastors or theologians or your own pastors or somebody you know, I don't care what it may be, authors, and we elevate them too much, we elevate them to a point that, that we hang on their every word and they are the final authority for truth, we have diminished Christ. We have lowered his status. One cannot in any way compare their relationship with any human leader, with their relationship with Christ, even the great apostle Paul. If you, even if you lived in the time of Paul, we know what an incredible leader he was, wrote a good portion of the New Testament, and you had a close relationship with him. Your relationship with Christ is much, much greater. We shouldn't get starry-eyed about Christian leaders because this is hero worship and borders on idolatry at times. And we must be careful of that. The very thought is ludicrous and foolish. And then he says in verse 17, the last point, the gospel of Christ is supernatural. In other words, the gospel of Christ is powerful in itself something the human leaders don't possess they don't have anything in themselves he says in verse 17 for christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel not in cleverness of speech so that the cross of christ would not be made void christ didn't send me to baptize and we need to be careful here we understand what he's saying so that we don't come to a wrong conclusion about baptism 
the Great Commission was go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The Great Commission was in play for the Apostle Paul. The Great Commission is in play for us. But Paul is saying, I didn't come to just baptize because baptism does not bring salvation. The cross of Christ. It is the gospel that has the power to save, not baptism. Came to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, literally not in the wisdom of words, Somehow by our human devices, we bring people to Christ because we're so eloquent and we do such a great God job and we're such snappy dressers and we have such a great building and people come to Christ because of all the things that we do. Paul is saying, God forbid that that be your hope. Your hope is the gospel and the message of the gospel. So he wasn't called just to baptize people apart from the truth and the power of the gospel, nor was he or anyone sent to baptize people as some kind of ecclesiastical or liturgical thing that if we just baptize people, that's that we just get them baptized and it's another mark in our church membership. No, 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 no. Not in cleverness of speech, not in words of wisdom, If the response to his preaching was because of his human eloquence, because of his human wisdom, because of his rhetorical style, because of his skinny jeans and his hipster glasses, if the response was because of those things, that's no gospel, is it? That's no gospel at all. Someone once said, I'm not sure who originally said it, what you win them with is what you win them to. If we are all about marketing, if we are all about music, if we are all about branding, if we are all about uh, business, um, uh, using business terms and, and, uh, and worldly methods, that's what we win people to. You know what that is? Nothing. We win them to the world. We have to do something. We have to do the best that we can. But we don't say, we've got the best worship band in, in town, because we don't. And we don't say, we have the best preachers in the city, because we don't. And we don't say, we have the best building around, because we don't. And we should never. And we always do the best we can with, with, um, with our music, with our preaching, with uh, everything that we do. But we always remember the motive that Paul will give us in 1 Corinthians 10. Whatever you do... Do all to the glory of God. Do all things for the sake of the gospel. Not for the sake of the name of Valley Bible Church or the name of the pastoral staff. You you get the point. The power is in the gospel. It is not in us. He's not called us to religious activity that is devoid of the cross emptying the gospel of truth and emptying the gospel of the transforming power of the cross of Christ is no gospel. We don't want to overemphasize baptism. We don't want to underemphasize baptism. But when in the end, we can't depend upon human tactics 
in human things to bring people to Christ. Christ brings people to Christ when we preach Christ. That is how it works. And he's going to take that up in the next chapter. So for us, the manner in which we communicate the gospel is not by man's wisdom and devices, but God's power. And as soon as we lose that at Valley Bible Church, we're done. We must be faithful. Paul has demonstrated the foolishness of their human reasoning. And he's going to apply that further as we go along. We're just kind of dipping a toe in what's coming next. In conclusion, when we elevate the truth, excuse me, when we elevate and trust in human methods, we diminish the cross itself because we don't trust in its power. When we start trusting in our own eloquence, our own education, our own experience, our own study, our own whatever it may be, and believe me, this is a, this is a struggle every week in preparing a sermon, working hard, praying about it, getting an outline, trying to be clear. There's always this temptation that if I do it to the best of my ability, I'm really going to convince people. And then I have to say, no, wait a minute. I need to do the best I can. But in the end, my trust and my hope is in him alone and in the cross of Christ. There's nothing else. And the cross of Christ is the gospel. It is the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I'd like you to take out your cup for communion because we're still talking about this. This is a little object lesson that Christ gave to us. This is the gospel. You hold it in your hands. If you're visiting with us and you know Christ as Savior, you're a brother, you're a sister in Christ, we invite you to this family meal that is symbolic of Christ giving his body and shedding his blood. And it is about the cross of Christ. Paul would say later on, and when he introduces the gospel, he would say this, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim what? The cross, the death of Christ. We do this once a week because it reminds us what are we all about? It's about the cross. He died and he rose to do away with sin and death once and for all. Father, thank you for giving to us this passage this morning. May it cause us to think about the allegiances that we hold dear. May it cause us to think about um, how we handle conflict with other Christians. May it cause us to think about our unity based upon truth. And may it cause us also to think about the cross of Christ, that in the end, whatever we do, whether it is serving the nursery, whether it is mowing the lawn, whether it is janitorial skills or teaching, 
adults or children or life groups, whatever we do, if we leave the cross of Christ out, if we trust in our own devices, we have diminished what Christ has done. And so we hold up for all to see Christ crucified and risen and coming back. And this bread and this cup represent that to us. And we partake with great joy and thanksgiving this morning together. Amen. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift of grace. And God's people said, Amen.